Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 through 20, and this is not human literature, but the word of the living God. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredibly beautiful day that you have given to us, a day in which we celebrate the, the conquering of sin, the conquering of death. Dear Jesus, we know that you hold the keys of Hades in your hand. And Lord, we just thank you for this. We thank you for Dr. Wallerford coming here and offering uh, his time to preach his words to us. We pray that you will give him those words, that you will give him the wisdom and the clarity of voice so that we will understand, prepare our hearts as well to receive what he says. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will not lie to you, of course, we have a very difficult text before us. It is not an easy text to interpret, but once we take the energy and the focus of concentration to dig into it, we will mine wonderful gold, we will glean wonderful truth from it. So may I urge you to pull together all your concentration and bear with me. This is a wonderful text and I think very fitting for this day. Let me begin by saying that when the Son of God died on the cross, as you know, the curtain in the temple tore in two. Now, not everybody knows where exactly this curtain was located. This curtain was a separator between what is called the holy place and the innermost holy place or the sanctum, the sanctus sanctorum. That would be the, the most holy place in all of the temple where the most direct presence of God was to be uh, expected. And when Christ died, 
this curtain, this separated tour from top to bottom, as you know. And this was the sign that the Old Testament administration, the Old Testament temple service has come to an end. Of course, it took still 40 years or one generation after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection for the temple to be destroyed to the ground. But de facto, all temple activity at that moment became utterly obsolete. All the temple activities who were shadows of Christ who were pointers to Christ, which were gospel sermons, were obsolete. Why? Because the real thing has come. All the Old Testament ceremonies, the cleansings, the washings, the sacrifices were gospel sermons pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the once and for all sacrifice, the once and for all cleansing for all of our sins. And therefore, the temple had truly become obsolete because when the real thing comes, the sign or the shadows go away. The way to God was now open, and it was entirely God's work. And that's why the curtain ripped from top to bottom as to remind the people that this was not man's doing, but this was God's doing. Now, coming from this glorious fact, we will look at our text from the prophet Isaiah, and we will see what it practically means that God in Christ has opened the way for us to the innermost holy place, into His presence. And we will consider three points. The first point is the new temple. The second point is the old temple. And the third point is the triumph of the new temple over the old temple. So let's begin with the new, the new temple. Let us begin by asking, what was it that Isaiah saw 750 years before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ or before the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? What did he see in Israel? Well, he saw a temple, and the old temple in Jerusalem, and he saw masses of people walking in and out, bringing their animal sacrifices and whatever else they needed. He saw a very busy scenery at the temple, people being very busy to do what they're supposed to do. So here he sees the temple. But by God's grace, he saw through the temple. And you have this wonderful phrase in the English language, to see through somebody or to see through something. God has opened Isaiah's view for him to see through all this busyness in the temple and through the temple itself, through the stone walls. He saw through the outward religiosity. He saw through the animal sacrifices. He saw through all the blood and the slaughterings and the burnt offerings. And he saw through the walls of the stone temple. And God showed Isaiah something that went beyond everything that he had ever seen. And it is described in verse 16 of our text. Behold... I am the one who has laid, actually the Hebrew says, is laying. Behold, I am the one who is laying as a foundation in Zion, a stone, 
a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Now what Isaiah is prophesying here or seeing here is a complete reconstruction of the temple. He is talking about a completely never-before-seen kind of building, and he's focusing on its foundation. He's looking at the foundation of this new temple, and he talks about a stone. He talks about a tested stone, a precious and firm cornerstone. This new temple will be different from the old temple in at least three aspects. The first aspect is that with this new temple, it becomes abundantly clear that its builder is God and God alone. Of course, one could say that the Solomonic temple was also built by God because God has given the order to Solomon to build it. And it was so, but yet it was human hands that built this temple. But it will be completely different with this new temple as there is no human participation at all that we read about in this prophecy of Isaiah. It is God himself and he alone who will build it. Again, verse 16, behold, I am the one who is laying as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. God alone will build this new temple. Second difference to the old temple is that this new building will be built with very, very special tools or very special instruments. Isaiah speaks of justice as a line and righteousness as a plumb line. In other words, this temple will be built with tools that are justice and righteousness. Well, justice and righteousness are perfections or attributes of God. And therefore, this new temple will be a spiritual building and not a building that is built with literal bricks or stone. And the third difference to the old temple is that now there is a wonderful connection to the New Testament. When during his ministry on earth, Jesus was asked for a sign, he answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then it adds, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Later, the apostles described the church as a temple of which Christ is the cornerstone. Paul, for example, writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Or the, a similar statement from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, it says, Christ that is, a living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourself 
like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and then it quotes, Behold, I am laying as in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This speaks about a spiritual building of which we are living stones, and Christ being the cornerstone. And the cornerstone of a building, of course, is the first stone that is being laid, and according to this stone, and aligned to this stone, and this stone only, everything else will be laid. Jesus Christ is this cornerstone. In our text, the prophet does not only call this cornerstone a foundation in Zion, not only a precious stone, but he calls this stone also a tested stone. And that sounds a little bit curious to us, but we can explain it. Because this means not only that this stone is fully tested, but more so it means that by this stone being a cornerstone, all other stones will be tested. And there is no way around this test. But what exactly is this test, you might ask, that all other stones will be tested by? It is the test that is described in verse 16, at the last part of this verse 16. Whoever believes, it says, will not be in haste. Another curious formulation. This is the test for stones who want to be living stones in this spiritual building of which Christ is the cornerstone. And the test is only one and one only faith. It doesn't say that those who believe and are of a certain ethnic descendant or those who believe and bring a lot of good works to the table, or those who believe and who bring an impeccable past to the table, those will be built in according to this cornerstone. No, it talks about faith alone. Of course, we're good Reformed people. We know all this in theory. But do we understand it? That it is faith and faith alone. When you do counseling as a regular on a regular basis, as you do as a pastor, you see really that with many in our pews, this is more theoretical than practical. They will profess all day long that it is all about faith. But then they come and say, I have problems with assurance. And you ask, why? Well, I've been so bad. Which shows me that they think that they need to be so good in order to be part of this spiritual temple. And then it becomes again works righteousness and not faith. But it is faith. It says it here. It says it everywhere else. It is faith alone. It is exactly what we just read also in 1 Peter chapter 2. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the new temple that Isaiah was prophesying about. It was a living temple. 
of living stones of which Christ is the one and only cornerstone. And now, of course, in our second point, we have to look at the old temple. What is the old temple? What was going on in this old temple that we needed a new one? And we begin with this question. What was the problem with the old temple? And it talks about the Solomonic temple, of course. We ask, was it not built well? Was it not in good architecture? Was it not safe? Was it not beautiful enough? And I can answer you, brothers and sisters, that Solomon's temple was very well built. And it was exceedingly beautiful. It was built after the blueprints, if you will, of God. Now you ask again, what was wrong with it then that we need a new temple? And again, we find the answer to our question at the end of verse 16. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now, what does this being in haste mean? That's what I mean. It's not an easy uh, text to uh, interpret. You've got to know what you're talking about in these forms of literature here. Being in haste does not describe exactly the tranquil mindset of a believer. It does not describe one who puts his trust in God. The one who puts his trust in God will not be what it says here or calls here in haste. Now, this does not mean that true believers are never in a hurry or that true believers work slowly and are lazy. That's not what it means at all. It means that those who truly live by faith do not live in reliance on their own strength. They do not live in a frenzy of fear, constantly being fearful of something. And usually, they have godly leaders who do whatever they can to drive their people not into such frenzy, but into the arms of their God, where they will find peace that surpasses human understanding. But that's exactly Isaiah's indictment against the Jewish leaders. And this is somewhat hard to read, especially when you're a minister. It says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule these people in Jerusalem. These rulers are being described as scoffers, but it can mean more. It can also mean uh, braggarts or posers or blowhards. This is directed towards the Jewish leaders who claim to know it all and to look down on Isaiah and on his word, even mocking him. We have the same situation almost as with Jesus later, that they didn't want the competition, somebody who truly spoke from God, and in their jealousy, they looked down on Isaiah, as they looked down on all the other prophets and even killed many of them. They were not good leaders. And while they present themselves so confident, Isaiah looks behind the mask by God's grace. He sees behind their mask of confidence. And he saw fear. They were full of fear, and it was fear of death. Death was now always on their minds, 
and their whole thinking was filled with this fear while they were posing as these confident, know-it-all leaders of God's covenant people who have everything under control. Now, what was the problem? Where did this fear in this particular situation come from? Now, verse 15 talks about an overwhelming whip. We could also translate flood, which was coming. And this whip of flood was an overwhelming threat that was rising on the horizon. It refers to the Assyrians who were used by God as a rod of chastisement against God's covenant people. And they were marching against them now. But the Jewish leaders make a big mistake. They are trying to solve the problem in their own strength as they are trying to gain unreliable and conniving in Egypt as an ally. They were putting their hope not on God, but on unreliable, not-to-be-trusted pagan Egypt. And they were hoping that Egypt will help them against this threat. The problem with this threat was it came from the Lord Himself. God raised the rod against His own covenant people, the rod of chastisement. And now God's covenant people think that they can outsmart God and hinder this threat not by turning to Him, not by repenting, but by turning to an ungodly, unchristian, pagan ally who was completely unreliable and not in the position, as nobody ever is, to stand against God's hand. This is what is happening in this whole text. And Isaiah sees the root of the problem. The root of the problem is unbelief and distrust in God and pride. And Isaiah, by God's grace, sees it. And he calls the pact with Egypt, which was the people's only hope, a covenant with death. He's polemicizing what they're doing. He's calling them out. He says, you think you can cheat death by making a pact with it? This is what verse 15 says. It looks right into the leader's hearts, and it quotes their twisted thinking with somewhat almost comical words. You have said, Isaiah says this, driven by the Holy Spirit. You have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made an arrangement or an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. This is what's happening in their hearts, and Isaiah brings it to the point. He says, this is what you're thinking. You think you can cheat death. You can think you, you can cheat God's chastisement. And the people, he says, don't trust the Lord. And in their fear, they completely forsake him. And they try to outsmart him who has sent the Assyrians to begin with. Now, beloved, here it becomes difficult because we can surely translate this into our day and age. And I know I will step on toes. But I'm not called to avoid toes but to preach the whole counsel of God. 
Isn't this much like the Western church today? The whip, the flood, is a neo-Marxist, a globalist, anti-Christian worldview that seeks to overwhelm the church of Jesus Christ. But the church, instead of turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of cleansing our hearts and our churches, instead of repenting and turning and running back to the Lord our God in covenant renewal and repentance, we sell out our faith. And we're trying to appease this demonic enemy through virtue signaling, through compromising, Telling them, oh, no, no, we are not categorically against women in the pulpit. We are not racist. We are not this. We are not that. We are not the other. We are not as bad as you think. Just leave us alone. And then we think we have outsmarted this movement. And they will leave us alone. And we'll just can go on as we always have. Let's just continue without making waves. That is the sin of cowardice. And it is a grave, grave, grave sin. I have said many times, and I will say this evening again, this will turn out to be the lapse of judgment of this century. This demonic movement will not take no for an answer. Believe me, it demands an answer. And who doesn't agree with them 100% will be harassed and canceled. This is what's happening all around us right now. Believe me, we cannot avoid this by trying to forge a compromise with death. We cannot avoid this by forging a compromise with this demonic movement and avoiding open confrontation. They will come and we'll better be ready. Because this movement will not take no for an answer. And the pew can move ahead and depose ministers for it. But this is not a time to sit still. This is not a time to seek peace. This is a time for war. It is God who is bringing this whip upon us. And we have been asking for it for a long, long time. And now we better return to our Lord and become ready to, in His strength, go to battle. Not by forging Allies who are not of the kingdom of Christ, but by standing strong and trusting our God. You cannot sit out this one. This movement demands an answer. We have been sitting for silent for far too long, trying to avoid conflict, appealing to a completely unbiblical concept of love and grace which in reality was cowardice. Let me read you something from Revelation chapter 21, what God thinks about cowardice. Because we are very busy in this day and age to call out all kinds of sin, but not our own. Revelation chapter 21, and I will begin at verse 7, and I will read through verse 8. The one who conquers will have his heritage And I will be his God and he will be my son. 
but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, please make sure you understand what I'm not saying. I'm not excusing any of these sins, but we're pretty busy pointing out some of those, like homosexuality. Have you realized that in this verse, the first sin that is being mentioned, long before sexual sin, is cowardice? We cannot go on like this. The church in the West has been cowardly for far too long. It has been trying to forge an agreement with death, trying to cheat God and His rod of chastisement for far too long. It will not work this time. Capitulation and compromise equals unbelief. And unbelief results in haste and frenzy and not in the peace with God or the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. But congregation, this applies not only to this movement that is coming for us now. It applies to all things that are capable of causing some discomfort or even fear in us. Aging and death. Sickness. Financial ruin. The economy. The inflation. All kinds of things. Unemployment. All these things are capable of causing some concern or even distress for us. But the, the answer that God is giving us here is, it is not right to trying to cheat circumstances with unbiblical means, but you have to turn to the Lord. You have to walk in His ways in all areas of life and trust in Him. And whatever befalls you is from Him. And whatever befalls you will work together for your good and for the glory of His name. Isaiah calls God's covenant people not to be fearful, but to trust in God and to seek their hope in Him and Him alone. You see, the dividing line with Isaiah is between those whose lives are determined by the things of this world and those, in comparison, who are aligned with the cornerstone. You can't have both. You have to be one who is aligned with the cornerstone, who put all their trust in the Lord. Dear friend, where do you stand? Where is your hope? Where will your hope be when everything is gone? I hear increasingly statements in this of our society that are increasingly troubling to me when people tell me I was angry at God when this or that happened. Angry at God? Angry at the God who saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The God who gave His own Son to die for you on that cross. You are angry at God? What have we become? What a selfish bunch have we become. It's all about us. It's all about our well-being. It's all about our feelings. And God can serve us like a gene in a bottle. And if He doesn't do so, we think we are justified in being angry at God. 
There's only one who has the right to be angry. And that's God at us. And it's a pure miracle of grace that he's not in Christ Jesus. Where do you stand, dear friend? Let us move to our third and last point. The triumph of the new temple over the old one. When the threat of the Assyrians came, the people, as we can clearly see, found no hope in their temple practices. It was all outward. It was all external. There was no faith. They had lost the true Savior behind the shadows which they were doing every day in their practices. The shadows, the signs have become the thing. It's like you're looking at the shadow of something and saying, this is the real thing. This is my wife. No, will somebody say, this is just a shadow. But she is. It's all I have. They, they were worshiping the shadows while missing the Christ who cast the shadow. The shadows had become the thing and shadows are nothing but the real thing itself is everything. They had lost the one to whom their temple was pointing, Christ, who became the cornerstone of the new temple, a temple that they couldn't see because it was built on faith in the cornerstone, but they didn't have faith. All they had was tradition and ethnic uh, pedigree and, and doing those religious rituals who never saved anyone. That's all they had, and they thought they were pretty pious. They were pretty good. Of course, it was more difficult in the Old Testament administration to see Christ. There was more temptation to get caught up by the exciting rituals, by all the colors, by the smells, by the practices. There was a lot of temptation to be sucked into the practices themselves and, and by their impressive natures. They did all this, and it all pointed to Christ, and yet He, Christ, was hidden from them. He was not the center of their faith. He was not the one who their trust was built upon. And this, beloved, brings us back to the veil in the temple. When Christ died on the cross, God did away with the temple of stone. The real thing had come. Christ had come. The signs, the shadows must go away. And the real thing is so much better to identify when you look at it than to embrace it through shadows. But whatever it is, shadows are the real thing. The blind will always be blind. The Jewish leaders tried to keep the temple going. I'm sure they tried to somewhat fix the veil in the temple into veiling the innermost holy again as it were. But they were not successful. Forty years later, the temple was grounded. It was completely destroyed by God through the hand of the Romans under Titus. You see, what God did at Easter 2,000 years ago when he laid a cornerstone in his son Jesus Christ was to destroy all covenants of death for all who believe in him. The old temple 
although obsolete, continued on for 40 years. They tried to keep it going. That's just like our life sometimes, isn't it? We are in Christ. We trust in Him. We're joyful in Him. And yet sometimes we're sucked back into the old angst, the old fear, the old concerns, the old ways. And they continue on for a while, but because of Christ, at some point they will be com completely finished. Christ is risen, beloved. The new temple was torn down and raised up after three days, just as he had prophesied. Oh, may we, as the people of God, be firmly built on this precious, firm, and lasting cornerstone, which is Christ, the one who says in no uncertain terms, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May God help us to find this rest in the one and only cornerstone. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to Thee in this evening hour in the name of our glorious and wondrous Savior, Jesus Christ. And we beseech Thee, O living God, help us that we may not forge any contracts or covenants with death, that we submit to Thy will and walk in Thy ways and trust in Thy Son, Jesus Christ, who is the only hope in life and death and beyond. May we be strong and joyful and faithful in Him until that final day when we will be united with Thee in all eternity through Him. O oh Lord, help us, for we ask it in His glorious name. Amen.